when we, um, when Olivia and I first got here, we uh, pretty pretty shortly afterwards had the opportunity to have uh, some people from the gym over to our house. And uh, when when we did, one of the we we asked other people to bring some food. We were going to provide the the barbecue chicken, and so we we asked other people to bring some sides and different things to snack on. Uh, one of the things that uh, one of the guys brought was something I'd never had before, uh, bear jerky. I don't know if any of you guys have ever had bear jerky before. That was uh, a bit of a novelty. It didn't, didn't really taste much different than uh, some of the other kinds of you know, jerky and pepperoni type uh, meats you can get. Uh, but, uh, but I was asking him about it because, I, I, you know, honestly, I didn't realize that, that hunting bear was, uh, I guess, a thing up here. Uh, but when he was starting to describe it to me, uh, basically, it's kind of a, it almost functions as a public service because, you know, bears just tend to be kind of invasive and the population, if it's left unchecked, will start to grow and grow and grow. And so when resources get scarce, they, of course, scatter to wherever there are resources. And so periodically throughout the year, uh, hunters can apply for a license uh, to go keep help keep the population in check. And of course, you know, some people do it for the sport as well. Um, but uh, it reminded me that uh, a similar thing happens in Mississippi with uh, alligator hunting. You, you have to get a license to help keep uh, the population in check. You don't just, you, in other words, you can't just go out any time of year and start hunting bear or start hunting alligator because what happens and what we've seen in, in plenty of other places is that when uh, people go and, and hunt a specific animal over and over again, a lot of times it can permanently and almost irreparably damage the population uh, of a specific animal. So the government steps in and uh, institutes this sort of licensure process. Uh, And I thought that was uh, relevant to the passage we're going to look at today because Paul is saying that just like with hunting bear or hunting alligator, we don't have an open license to go and do everything that we want to do. That's what Paul is describing at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What you have seen in the past few weeks as we picked back up in 1 Corinthians is, is that the church uh, was just doing anything they wanted to do. They, they weren't allowing the message of the gospel to infiltrate their lives and dictate and determine what they were doing. They, they set their own agendas and did whatever they wanted to do. And so some of the problems that were occurring were things like sexual immorality, uh, what we looked at last week, the problem of uh, Christians taking other Christians to court. They just did whatever they wanted to do. They didn't, they didn't think the gospel had implications on every part of their lives. So as we pick up in 1 Corinthians 6, we're looking at verse 12 and finishing out the chapter today. Verse 12, Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. You'll you'll notice here in verse 12 that he uses quotation marks. Or your Bibles might render this with quotation marks. So now originally uh, in in the Greek, you wouldn't have uh, these sorts of uh, grammatical markings, but it's pretty clearly understood from the way Paul is using his rhetoric that he's taking some of the arguments that the Corinthians are applying uh, 
to doing whatever they want to do and beginning to unpack the error in their arguments. And so this is one of the things that they're trying to argue about uh, using their freedom in Christ for whatever they want to do. And so you'll notice this happening twice, these quotations. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. He uses it again. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Verse 13, a, a separate one. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Close quotation marks. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and and make them members of a prostitute? Never. The word that he uses there is actually a Greek curse word. He says, may it never be. He's saying, "I, I wish this into no sort of existence. He's, as we would, damn something to hell, is using this in this strong language sort of way. He says, may this idea never exist. May we never do what you're doing, Corinthians. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the uh, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The main thought that I want us to begin to wrap our heads around this morning is that last phrase that Paul writes in the second half of verse 19. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The remainder of our time, I want to take that phrase and kind of work backwards with it. Uh, The first thing I want to do is, is look at that last phrase. Glorify God in your, and let's just draw a blank there, in your, anything you could possibly fill in there. Glorify God in your body. Glorify God with your stuff, with your time, with your affections. We're going to take uh, the first half of this, uh, of this passage and understand a little bit more thoroughly what it means to glorify God in your or with your fill in the blank. And then the second half of the time, uh, understand what it means to be bought with a price. And so let's jump right in. Uh, the, pr- the problem we're beginning to see in the passage here is that the Corinthians, Paul has circled back to the argument that he was making previously in chapter 5, uh, had committed several different sexual indiscretions. In chapter 5, uh, there was a, a man who had and was actively taking his mother-in-law in a sexual relationship. But he goes on to uh, describe a, a, a separate problem 
Uh, there seems to have been this misconception that the Corinthians had the right to go to the various uh, Greek temples and interact, we'll say, with the temple prostitutes. This was a bit of a culture blind spot. It was, it was normal for people in the culture to go to the temple and to, uh, to have intercourse with the prostitutes there uh, because they felt like they were honoring the deities. And so uh, because those were the cultural waters that the Corinthians were swimming in at the time, uh, the Corinthian church just really didn't think about the fact that maybe this is actually a problem for us to go and do that. They, they almost interposed this sort of glorifying the Greek deities to the God they were now worshiping. They thought, well, if we go to the temple, previously we were honoring the other gods. Well, now we're honoring our God with this act. And Paul says, guys, this is an enormous blind spot for you. Mm. And that should remind us that even though this seems so obvious for us to look at and say, how could you not see that that's going to be a problem? Uh, Paul, Paul couldn't have more clearly defined uh, what is right and wrong sexual immorality or sexual practice. Uh, how, how as, as modern people looking at that, could, could they not understand that this wasn't uh, in accordance with what God's will is for our, uh, the use of our bodies? And yet it should be a strong reminder because of its obviousness that we too have our own cultural blinders on. And the problem with cultural blind spots is that they're blind spots. <laughs> they're hard to see. They're hard to identify. And so that should, uh, in, in my estimation, uh, underscore the importance of accountability systems in our lives. It should underscore the importance of us regularly gathering with other believers. It should underscore the importance of regularly engaging with the scriptures, uh, of spending regular day in, day out time with the Lord, reading his word, asking him to help us understand it, prayerfully contemplating it, memorizing it, allowing it to perform its function and reveal sin in our lives. But should it, also, it should also reveal to us the importance of being in the sort of intentional discipling relationships uh, where other people can peer into our lives and, and see where there are parts and areas of our lives that aren't uh, in accordance with God's plan for us as Christians. Cultural blind spots should reinforce the importance of different levels of accountability in our lives because the problem with it is that we're probably not going to see it. They're blind spots. And so there's this enormous problem looming that they're just not able to see fully because you can see to some extent they're, they're acknowledging that they should be able to get away with it. They're just having trouble seeing that it actually is a problem. They use a couple of different justifications like I mentioned when I was reading the passage. You see in verse 12 that they say, they say all things are lawful for me. When someone comes to them and has apparently said, maybe it's Paul, maybe it's been someone else, you, you guys go into the temple and, and, and doing what you're doing isn't appropriate for Christians. They're saying, no, 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 we're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want. They're saying they have total freedom to do what they please. And 
That is a particularly emphatic point for us as North Americans who are individualists to understand. We, we have this tendency to think that we have and we ought to have total freedom to do whatever we want to do. That our value, that our freedom to do as we choose or whatever we want comes above everything else. But the thing that Paul is trying to help them understand is that real freedom isn't the absence of boundaries, but it's the presence of the right ones. It isn't the absence of boundaries altogether. It's the presence of the right guardrails. We're, we're fallible people. We're sinful people. And so we, we need the appropriate boundaries and guardrails in our lives. That's why... Anarchy happens when there's no government. It, it, it doesn't ultimately work. We all are in it for ourselves, and we all uh, tear down order when there isn't any order to be had. And Paul is trying to help them understand that the real freedom of the cross is that we've been released from the burden of having to live perfectly in order to have a relationship uh, with God and so Jesus became our perfect lawkeeper so we might receive adoption as sons. Just to, to give you a little illustration of that, I don't know if you remember uh, when we had our team from Mississippi come up, uh, our, our good friends, the Stevens, had uh, about a year and a half ago uh, adopted their son, Alec, from uh, Kyrgyzstan. And uh, when, when they adopted him, they went through the legal process of making him their own son. And as a result of that, as a result of not only the legal process, but the fact that they love their son, there's never a moment at which Alec isn't going to cease to be their son, even though he was adopted. In other words, his, his sonship doesn't ever in any way depend on how well he obeys his parents. But that doesn't mean there aren't still rules and boundaries for him as a son. That his experience as son and their experience as parents, uh, the happiness of that sort of relationship depends on how well he is able to follow and keep their rules. That as he walks inside the boundaries of being a child uh, under his parents, he's going to be happier when he follows their rules. And they're going to be more pleased with him. But it doesn't mean they're going to disown him if he breaks their rules. It doesn't mean they're going to love him as an orphan again. And the same is true for us. That Jesus has brought us into relationship with the Father. And there's nothing we can do to not be his children. Our relationship with God doesn't depend on what we do, and yet our enjoyment of him does dramatically. That we experience the smile of the Father more when we are in alignment with his rules and his boundaries. That our lives are richer when we obey him. And so as we, as we think about this sort of uh, freedom and what it means. The Corinthians were saying 
real freedom is the absence of all rules and boundaries. And what Paul is coming in is, and, and saying is, look, you, you've been called sons and daughters of God. That doesn't mean just because you've been set free, there aren't any rules to be followed. It means that the rules that are there are there for your good and for God's glory. And so the way Paul is, is using and applying this argument, it's to say, look, sexuality isn't a subjective matter. It isn't open to interpretation. God has created you. He has created your bodies. He has created humanity with a specific purpose and a specific goal in mind. And I would venture to say that that has a lot to communicate to us about the common argument that we would hear that it's my body, my choice. I get to do with my body whatever I want to do. And the fact of the matter is we get to that point if we don't hold tightly to the confession that the scriptures are the single most important authority of morality in our lives, in the world. And if we don't hold to that confession that the scriptures are our authority, then we may soon end up opposing the Lord. Because what happens is that we elevate our experience over what is written. You know, if we end up having a, a child or uh, a grandkid or a close friend who um, struggles with same-sex attraction and uh, gives into it and, uh, and identifies with their uh, sexual attraction, then maybe we begin to change our definition of what right sexuality is and end up opposing God. Or we know a, a grandchild or a child or a friend who uh, is pregnant out of marriage or is pregnant with a, a child who is apparently going to have a disability and so they're considering abortion. That as we begin to have these experiences, these proximal relationships with things that are in conflict with God's word, we begin to change definitions. We leave behind the way God defines morality in favor of what we think our experience is dictating to be true. Because ultimately that sort of individual determinism is the cultural norm of our time. Uh, R.C. Sproul was a, a theologian who passed away recently and he uh, described the, the climate that we live in in a sort of way of, um, you know, if you, if you were to imagine uh, going up to someone and, uh, and they were to say, well, well look, all, all morality is determined by me. I, I get, determined what's right, get to determine what's right and wrong. He says, well, what would happen if you walked up to that same person and you stole their purse or their wallet? all of a sudden that morality becomes a little more definite. If you were to try and say, well, look, it was just what I felt was right and wrong. They would insist that their morality trumped your morality. Look, the, the thing that I'm trying to communicate to you is that when we buy into this notion that real freedom means absence of boundaries and rules, you're beginning to stand on really shaky ground. It's not actually a position of strength for our culture. Like, we have true objective authority to stand on as Christians. 
people want to make our book a 2,000 plus year old catalog of God's writing to be a position of weakness, to say, oh, well, you haven't changed. You're uh, archaic and outdated and outmoded. And I would say, no, that's actually a strength for us. Consider where culture has come and moved. Definitions and terms and right and wrong are constantly changing. We can look back at 2,000 years of Christian history and say, we've held to our guns. These things have, have always been true. It's good for us to submit to God's rule and reign and authority, to his guidelines, his principles, his structures. That absolute freedom without boundaries isn't a good thing. That it ultimately is going to undermine our confidence, even in the legal system. You know, you begin to have these holes and discontinuities. It's why uh, someone can be punished and thrown in jail for harming an eagle egg. And yet, there's no sort of punitive action for when uh, a mother kills a child in womb. You have these holes in thinking that an unborn eagle somehow has more value than an unborn child. It it begins to erode your confidence in the judicial system and your ability to create laws and rules and regulations and govern society with order. Don't don't buy into the lie that we're uh, coming from a position of weakness with our scriptures. The Corinthians go on and and make a second argument, though, in verse 13. They say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. What they're trying to communicate is, look, bodies don't really matter. We can do with them whatever they want. If, If our bodies are made to eat, then we can just eat whatever we want. And Paul says, look, God, God designed your bodies for a specific purpose. But even more than that, Consider what he says in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Are you going to, by your actions at the temple with the temple prostitutes, are you going to drag Christ into that? If you've been made one with Christ, why on earth do you think it's appropriate to bring Christ into the mix there? He goes on and explains a little more in verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written in Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So he's describing this sort of discontinuous relationship. Look, you've been made one with the Lord. How are you going to go and be made one with somebody else? Like, that's not a mathematic equation that makes sense. And that matters for us today. We may not be struggling in the sort of extreme ways that the Corinthians were, but they're saying, look, our bodies don't matter. We We can do with them whatever we want. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. God defines what is a good use of the flesh And the body we've been given and the time we've been given it. There are real implications for us today to consider what we do with our bodies. 
that we don't just get to abuse them with drug use, that we don't just get to abuse them with overeating all the time. He says, I'll be dominated by nothing. But he provides a a solution there in verse 18. What does he write? Flee. Flee from sexual immorality. And that's actually a a biblical precedent all throughout the scriptures as a, a mechanism for dealing with sin. To flee from sin. Uh, he, he probably has in mind Genesis 39. You may remember uh, the story of Joseph. After Joseph has been sold and is a slavery by his brothers, he begins this long process of rising through the ranks uh, in the uh, Egyptian political system. And he becomes the king's cupbearer. And as he has this sort of relationship with uh, Pharaoh and his family, Pharaoh's wife takes notice of Joseph because the scriptures record some specific things about him. So Genesis 39, beginning in verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. But one day, When he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. I mean, it's almost this comical picture. She's been asking day after day after day. And finally, she's like, come on. She grabs his cloak and he realizes, look, arguing is just not going to work at this point. I've got to get out of Dodge. And so he flees and she's still got his, his outer garment in her hands. He gets out of there as quickly as he can. And, and perhaps that's what Paul has in mind when he writes it. And it's another consistent strategy for dealing with sin. He writes the same sort of thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. He says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You may recall Jesus uh, implementing a a similar strategy when we're facing sin. He writes in Matthew 5.30 that we should cut off our hand or pluck out our eye if it's going to cause us to sin. It's this uh, notion of doing anything to get away from sin, to remove sin from us, to create distance between us and it. Do anything within your power to get away from it. That's what Paul says. Flee it. Flee sexual immorality. Don't give it any sort of uh, option, availability to stick its head in and run its course. Because you know, the longer you wait, the more you begin to convince yourself that that sort of sin is going to be okay for you. And 
So Paul is saying in all of this, look, there is a massive problem, this cultural blind spot. And you, and you may think that the things you're arguing are good justifications to continue sinning, but they're not. And in fact, you have to flee sin of any kind. He's not, he's not just describing sexual immorality. In, in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he had already described this laundry list of, of sins. He says, these people who practice any one of these things will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers. Flee those sins. And he goes on to say, glorify God in your body. Of course, he's immediately describing the way we use our body for sexual ends. He says, glorify. Instead of gratify, glorify God in your body. But it's also a principle for nearly anything. That's why, we, that's why the title of the sermon is glorify God in your blank. Fill it in. Paul understands that there's nothing too small or insignificant to honor God and give God glory. That's why he writes in 1 Corinthians 10.30 that whether you eat or you drink, do it all for God's glory. I mean, those are the things that we probably take most for granted, right? Like we have to drink water to survive. We have to eat food to continue to be able to walk and move and, again, survive. These are basic things. That he's saying, even in those, honor God, glorify God, seek to give him glory. There's nothing too small, or too insignificant. And it's really important that we consider this in the area of our cultural blind spots. Like we have to be so careful to surround ourselves with those uh, objects of accountability so that we might begin to understand and uh, dig out and uncover these blind spots. How do we honor God in our free time, in our vacation time? Is that something we're thinking about? How do we honor God with our regular daily schedules? Are you waking up early enough to actually, before your schedule starts, spend time with the Lord? Are you going to bed early enough to get enough sleep so that you can wake up early enough? There, there is, your bedtime is not too small to give God glory in. There is nothing that's too small to consider how you might honor God with. And that command is, is not just a rote command. Paul is going to, as we described, in saying he first, we first want to take the command, he's going to also inform us how we move from command to actually doing it by saying, look, you were bought with a price. And so it's not just a command. The higher appeal is to love Jesus more. that we're not going to obey just out of being told to obey. We're going to obey after we've been shown and understand why 
we ought to follow Christ with everything that we have. And so this is the second part of the passage that I want to take a look at. It's that we've been bought with a price. And that is the heart of the gospel and the most powerful solution that he's going to provide. That being bought with a price is grounds for glorifying God. But I want to parse out those two terms really quickly. What, what is the price that he's talking about? If you turn with me to 1 Peter 1, Peter elaborates on this beautifully here. Verses 18 and 19, 1 Peter chapter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What is the price? The price that you are ransomed with is the precious blood of Christ. That blood, of course, uh, functions almost figuratively to encompass the whole crucifixion event. Mm. That we ought to consider Jesus' suffering as he made his way up to the cross, the mock trial that uh, occurred before that uh, he was lied about, that false witnesses were brought against him, that he uh, was lied to, lied about, excuse me, unfairly, uh, that he was whipped and beaten so severely that he wasn't even able to carry his cross, that a crown of thorns was placed on his head, and that even in his dying moments he uh, was nailed to a cross to a tree, naked, in front of the entire city of Jerusalem, was spit on and mocked by everyone. That's why the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, writes, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown. That when the goal is glorifying God in everything we have, with everything we do, that the call is always to remember the price. But we also are to remember that we've been bought. And our tendency, I think, when we come to this passage is to read it as the Corinthians might have, to say, we've been bought, so we're free. We're free to do what we want. But the language here is indicating that we were a slave and Jesus bought us off the auction block for his purposes. Scripture writes that we are slaves to Christ. He's bought us with a price for his use, for his glory. But he says, look, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Slavery... To Christ isn't oppressive. Being servants of Christ isn't oppressive. Mm. The fact of the matter is, 
our, our human language can only encapsulate so much. And so God is using these accommodated analogies to help us understand your new position in Christ, having been purchased, is like being a slave to Christ. And yet he also says, your sons. And so we have to begin to combine all of these analogies to understand what it means to be purchased by Christ. Mm-hmm. Then we're not only slaves to Christ, but we're sons. He writes, as we looked at last week, that we're going to inherit the kingdom. That these analogies fail on their own, but taken together paint this beautiful picture of what it means to belong to Christ. Mm-hmm. Olivia and I were uh, reading through this confession that the Gospel Coalition put out and it asks what our only hope in life and death is. And it says that I belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's our only hope. And it is a good and worthwhile hope. And so Paul is appealing to the exchange of the cross when he says glorify God in your bodies because you were bought with a price. And the question that he's really driving at is, is this your treasure? Is Christ your treasure? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when you find your heart, when you find yourself doing the things that you love, there you find your treasure. And so is your treasure Christ or is your treasure something else? My my sole purpose in preaching is to come here and point you to Jesus and say, look at this pearl of great price. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it worth it? Everything you have. Come without money and buy, but give your life. Take up your cross daily. That He is worth everything. Jesus is worth everything you have all your love, all your affection, all your time, all your stuff. Everything you have, everything you are, Jesus is worth it. And that is my sole purpose in being here is to point you to that reality. And to be honest, uh, this past week, we, when we were helping with uh, kids camp, uh, I just found it harder to commit my time and, and energy to spending time in the Word with the Lord because we were waking up early and heading out pretty early uh, to get to New West in time to help this couple. And then by the time we get back home, you know, we're beat from <laughs> running around with kids for six hours a day. And let me tell you, this was a passage that I was really looking forward to for weeks preaching. And the lack of time that I would regularly have had but didn't make this week... I, I really felt it when I was writing out the sermon. And so I want to appeal to you to let you know I can't imagine what life is like if you're not regularly engaging with God's Word, 
with the Lord, with his people. How dull are your affections going to grow? And I, and I honestly, I, I felt sapped when I was coming here. I, I felt myself just going through the motions when I was writing the sermon at times. And, and I ended up thinking about how the gospel is good news for you. Instead of how the gospel is first and foremost the thing that I cherish. How the gospel is good news for me. Because the fact of the matter is, I was bought with a price. That Jesus' blood was the payment for my sin. That his blood was the currency that bought and secured my redemption. It's because the Father loved me, knew me, chose me, and sent his Son for me that I'm alive and standing here to proclaim you the excellencies of the risen Christ. And the same God that raised Jesus from the dead and raised you from the dead is the same God that gave us the Spirit to dwell with us. The same God who says heaven and the highest heavens can't contain me is the same God who confines himself to us in the person of his Spirit. That the entire universe can't contain the entirety and the existence of who God is and yet he confines himself to us. And I can't get charged up for that. That is what we have to remember day in, day out. When sin presses against us, when we want to give in and be the authority of our lives and say, this is what's going to make me really happy, to lash out, to retaliate, to take another look, to eat another, to not come, to not engage, to not speak, That pointing us to Christ is the only thing I can do. And the only thing that will create transformation in our lives. It's not anything I do. It's the gospel working its own power, growing each one of us. And so I appeal to you this morning, consider Christ. Consider Christ as the only worthy object of affection in your lives. That's great.